Well, like we said in the announcement time, we are returning to our study of the book of Hebrews today. And so if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 18 today. Um, if uh, you're new with us, we're actually in a very lengthy series on the book of, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, but Hebrews has some real depth to it, and it's long. And so uh, we've taken a, couple of bre- a number of breaks with it. Uh, but we're returning today, and I'll kind of set up where we are in Hebrews here in a moment. Let me pray one more time, and then we'll dive into Hebrews 10, verses 15 to 18. Father God, thank you for this moment as your people to, to come together and to worship you and to hear from you. Lord, your truths, your promises, that's our, our place of joy. That's where we find our identity. That's where we find our hope for the future. And that's where we experience joy. So Lord, as we wrestle with uh, your covenants, your covenant promises, I pray, Father, that we would certainly understand your covenant better. But ultimately, Lord, I pray that those understandings with our minds would seep down into uh, our feelings in our heart and frankly lead us to joy. Lord, we need your spirit to come to do that today. And so we ask that he would come, that he would fill this room, that he would do those things that only he can do of opening our eyes to see, of, of uh, convicting us of sin, of encouraging us where we're discouraged. And so, Spirit, we invite you to fill this room and do a good work today. Lord, I pray that all of us would walk away from this time more conformed to your image. So, Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, a mezuzah, this is a mezuzah, this is one of the little treasures I discovered when we were in Israel last month, and uh, a Hasidic or a rabbinic Jew uses a mezuzah for a couple of reasons. This mezuzah, it's used as a reminder of God's covenant, but also in that it's used as a tool to not only remind them what God requires in His covenant, but also what He requires of us. It's a way to, for them to keep the law. If you remember Deuteronomy 6, 9, it talks about God wanting us to put His word and put His law on our gates and on the doorpost of our house. Throughout Israel, we would travel different places, different hotels even. Every hotel room we stayed had one of these attached next to the doorpost or on the doorpost of the hotel. At different places that we would go, we would walk in a door and we would see these little cases there. And so uh, as we went on, I started asking my guide, what, what, what is that thing on all these doors? And he said, well, it's, it's a mezuzah. And so then I had a whole series of questions uh, of what that meant. And so I had to get one. This is the one that I plan to put in my office. And, and I'll tell you, this is a, a scripture that, that you kind of roll up and put inside of it. And then you either nail it or, or screw it into the door post or next to the entry of a door. Now, on what's going on there is it's, a, again, a reminder of God's covenant, and it's a reminder of us uh, or for them to keep the covenant. But like a lot of these laws that they would have, there's a, a kosher version of it and maybe a less kosher version of it. So as I kind of got into the weeds of what is a mezuzah, I had to go all in. So I went full kosher on this thing. So let me tell you what how this is a kosher mezuzah. Number one, for a mezuzah to be kosher, you have to buy this in the Jewish quarter of the Temple Mount, not the Muslim quarter. 
So I made my guide peel away from the entire rest of the group, and we hiked over to the Jewish quarter so that I could buy my mezuzah. Number two, you have to buy this in order for this to be kosher. It has, you have to buy it from someone who is Jewish. And this has been bought from someone who is Jewish. Number three, you have to buy it, uh, the, the parchment that goes on the inside. And I'm going to explain what this is in a moment. This has to be handwritten, not like photocopied or printed out. It has to be handwritten on this parchment. And if you look really close, I think I have a picture up there. This sucker is handwritten. And it has to be written by a particular person. So number four, it has to be written by a scribe that's approved uh, you know, as, as a scribe to write these things out. Now you might be wondering, okay, well, what is that on there? Is anybody in here, can anybody read that in Hebrew? If you can't, let me explain what's on there. What's on there is, is two passages of Scripture. The first one is from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9, and the second one um, is from Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21. Now, what this is and what's written on here is, is, is God's covenant or a summary of God's covenant. Let me, I won't read all of it, but the, the best summary of God's covenant is called the Shema of Israel. And it's found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, which is uh, part of what's written on here, which says, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your theistic like all the other gods. He's one. There's one true God. He's our God, and he calls us to love him with everything that we have. Hebrews 10 is all about God's covenant. It's all about God's covenant relationship with us, what he promises in that covenant, and then what is to be our response Today we're returning to the book of Hebrews, and if you're new with this or you're kind of jumping into this study, we've called this study Jesus is Better. And the reason why we've called it that is that really gets to not only the, the purpose of writing, the purpose of why Hebrews was written, but also the solution to the problem. The, the problem that causes the book of Hebrews to be written is that people are falling away. Even in Jesus' time, and we referenced this last week, that there were people who saw Jesus do miracles, saw him do these different things. And then, then when teachings came that were hard, meaning teachings that they didn't like, they began to fall away. They, they did that even when Jesus was here. But even here in the, in the first generation of the church, this first century church, there were Christians who were falling away. They were experiencing some sort of trial as a result of being a Christian. Maybe it was just outright persecution. Maybe it was just like family pressure or, or economic pressure of being a Christian. Or maybe it was things that they just didn't like what was being taught anymore, and then they fell away. And so this was a problem in this first generation of churches, and that's why the book of Hebrews was written. But the solution to that, the solution to falling away, is that Jesus is better. So whatever is tempting you to fall away, know that Jesus is better than whatever that is. Whatever you think that you're going to gain from falling away from Christ, know that Jesus is better. And that's why we've called uh, this series, Jesus is Better. Now, the reason why we've taken some breaks from this study of Hebrews, I think, this, I think we're in our third year in Hebrews, which is probably too long. But the reason why we've taken some breaks here is because there's some real depth. There's some real meat to Hebrews. It's really complex. And, and frankly, I kind of have to come up from air for, for it sometimes, and you probably do too. But, but to get into Hebrews is to do a deep dive on who Jesus is and, and what the gospel is. It's very complex, and so we kind of come back around to it, then we take some breaks, and so we're returning to it today. But the reason why I wanted also to, to uh, return to Hebrews today on Palm Sunday is because there's a real connection between what Jesus is doing on Palm Sunday or his mission on that day to what Hebrews 10, 15 to 18 is all about. 
So, so when Jesus comes out of the Mount of Olives and, come down, and comes down the Kidron Valley and then up into Jerusalem, up into the, to the, uh, to the city and, and the Temple Mount, riding on that donkey, what's going on there is those uh, people are, are shouting Hosanna and, and laying those palm branches before Him and saying God saves and worshiping Him. What they're doing is they're recognizing Him as Messiah. And he's embracing that. That's, he, he wants that to happen because he wants everyone to know that he's the Messiah because what he's going to accomplish during that next week is the main mission of the Messiah. He comes and, and atones for our sins on the cross and then rises from the dead victoriously. And that's what the Messiah was meant to do. That was the mission of the Messiah that also fulfills the covenant. All these covenant promises are fulfilled in Christ. And so what we're going to talk about today, this, this deep dive into a, uh, really three promises of the covenant, all of that is being fulfilled on that week uh, of Easter. Hebrews 10, 15 to 18 um, has this focus on the, on the covenant. And, and this focus is important for us even today because we struggle with our relationship with the covenant. We struggle with really believing if the covenant was fulfilled. And what I mean is, is that we can so easily drift into a conditional relationship with God versus an unconditional relationship with God. We can think that our relationship with God is based upon our adherence to the covenant. Are, are we keeping the law? And if we're keeping the law, then we're right with Him. But if we're not keeping the law, then we're wrong with Him. But what we're going to see today is that God promises a covenant where he transforms our insides and he forgives our debt. So we're going to see that the covenant is now uh, less about what we need to do, but rather what Jesus has already done. Let's start in verse 15 and we'll read all the way to 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them in their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of, of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. The first thing I want you to see is that we are to trust the Holy Spirit when He bears witness. Now, in, in order, I think, to give weight to this passage, he says in verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness. And then he goes into quoting Jeremiah 31. I, I think it's very significant that he says that the Holy Spirit is the one who bears witness. And I think it's significant for three reasons. First, when, when, we, read, um, and when we read the Bible, it's important to understand the, the author of the Bible uh, has both a, a lowercase a author and a, and a capital A author. There, there's, when we read something in the, in the Bible, like in this case, we're reading Jeremiah. Jeremiah authors this. He, he wrote this down or he spoke it and somebody wrote it down for him. And, and so in a very real sense, he's the author of it. And, and, but behind that, behind Scripture, God is the author of it. God is the one that directed that and inspired that. And he did it according to Jeremiah's personality and how Jeremiah spoke and the way he wrote and all of those things. But there's a lowercase a and there's a capital case a author behind all of Scripture. For example, it's common like if we're studying the book of Ephesians, and we, we quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 a lot. And so when I quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it's, I'll say, well, Paul says, and then I quote that. I'm actually actually trying to do that less. Because even though that's true, and there's nothing wrong with doing that, more importantly, when you quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, it's God says, dot, dot, dot. Are you with me? 
So what's going on here is not only did Jeremiah say this, but God said this. So all the scripture is divinely inspired. And I think that that's one of the things he's trying to highlight here. Yeah, this is Jeremiah 31, but, but forget about Jeremiah for a moment. The Holy Spirit is saying something here. However, second, this verse is sp- specific in saying that the Holy Spirit is the author. It's not the Father, it's not the Son, it's the Spirit is the author here. Now, if you'll look here in Hebrews 10, if you'll look back up to verse 5, notice that somebody else is the author of that scripture, that psalm. In verse 5, it says that the Son, it references Christ being the author of that. But then later on here in verse 15, it says the the Holy Spirit is the author. Why does it emphasize specifically that the Holy Spirit, not Christ, not the Father, is the author? I, I think that's for a couple of reasons. Number one, it emphasizes that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Trinity. Now, the word Trinity is never used in the Scriptures, and there's a number of places where we see the Trinity happening. Hebrews 10 is one of those places. We, we see both the Son referenced as, uh, as the authority or the voice behind a Scripture, and then we see the Holy Spirit as the authority and the voice behind another Scripture, and they're right here together in the same passage. So I think what's going on here is that God is trying to communicate that both the Son and the Spirit um, are part of the Trinity. But second, I think what's going on here is there's a sense that the, the son is playing a specific role in what's going on up in, in Hebrews 10.5. So when he reads that psalm and references and connects that to Christ, Christ is playing, I think, a specific role in carrying out that scripture. But I think down here, the Holy Spirit is playing a specific role of bearing witness to the truth of this, and I also think playing a role in empowering all of this to happen. So that's why I think the Holy Spirit is specifically mentioned here. But as we read these verses, I want you to keep in mind that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness. Who is testifying? He's the one who is empowering. He is saying that these promises are happening and that I am ensuring that they will happen. And that's what the Holy Spirit is saying. Therefore, we need to trust the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a real role of the Holy Spirit here, and we are to trust the power and the witness of the Holy Spirit. But what is he bearing witness to? Well, the second thing I want you to see is that he's bearing witness to a covenant of inner transformation. He's bearing witness to a covenant of inner transformation. Now, what we're going to see in this passage is that he bears witness to three specific things. Now, hear me. The Holy Spirit can bear witness to all sorts of things, right? The Holy Spirit is not limited to these three things. But in this case, he is limiting it to these three things, okay? Now, I want to take a sidebar here for a second because I think this is something that is really important that impacts um, our own like day-in, day-out spiritual life of how does the Holy Spirit and how does the Word work together? This is a great example of the Spirit and the Word coming together. Some Christians, I think, have a habit of claiming the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to things when, in fact, maybe He is and maybe He's not. So I regularly have people say, hey, God told me dot, dot, dot. Now, let me tell you what I do in that moment. If you come to me and say, listen, the Spirit tells me, Say, love you, I'm with you, I'm going to hear you, and I'm going to suspend judgment. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't, okay? I'm not calling you a liar, I'm not saying you're unspiritual, I don't know how this Holy Spirit leads you. But sometimes in in all these years of, of walking with folks, I've had a lot of people say, the Holy Spirit is telling me dot, 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 and then you look back a year later, and he wasn't at all. And so 
one of the things, and I think this impacts our spiritual life constantly. And I think it's important for us to suspend judgment in that moment. You see, when that happens, when somebody comes and says, hey, I think the Spirit is leading me to do this. What I do is I say, hey, okay, let's, let's talk further. Let me enter into prayer with you on that. Let, let's bring God's covenant community. Let's bring the church around you. Let's speak into these things, and, and let's come around this together. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that I think uh, the Holy Spirit always works within conventional wisdom, for example, right? Like, like I've had people say, hey, God's calling me to this, and you think, man, I, I don't know about that. But then in reality, they step out of faith and do it, and he clearly was. And so God can accomplish, you know, really big things out of the box, all those sorts of things, and he can lead us in that way. I've had uh, people believe the Holy Spirit was telling them something, and, and maybe it came to bear, and maybe it didn't. However, I know the Holy Spirit does bear witness to things in my life, and I want you to hear that from me. I want you to know that the Holy Spirit leads me and guides me, and I listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit. For example, I felt God through the Spirit calling me to plant this church. Chris and I enter into a season of prayer about this. We had some people talking about needing a church here. Uh, we, we went through all that process, but we felt God leading us to plant this church, and so we did. Uh, you guys know that I have married up, obviously. But I felt strongly that God was leading me the Holy Spirit was telling me to marry Kristen. I even had a dream about it. Now, God can speak through dreams. God can, uh, uh, he can uh, do all these different things. He can speak to us in all these different ways. But let me tell you, and I'm not, I don't mean this as a joke. I'm, I'm just trying to use this as an example. I've ne- I recently bought some new tennis shoes. I've never had some, I've never had the Holy Spirit say, buy New Balance and not Nike. Okay, I, and I'm <laughs> That is a joke, but it's not a joke, okay? What, what I'm getting at is, is, for me, the Holy Spirit has not led me in those sorts of things. Now, if he has you, I, I'm not saying that that's wrong. And I'm not saying that, well, he's not really speaking. To, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that's not the normal way that he has spoken with me. And I don't think that that's the normal way that he does speak. I've never heard the Holy Spirit speak to me audibly. I'm, I'm not saying he doesn't do that. He does do that. I, I've said that I've had a, had a dream of where I think the Holy Spirit was leading me, okay? Now, that was years before Krista and I got married, and I had a dream that we would get married, and that was my heart's desire, and there was all sorts of things, but we didn't get, we didn't get married at that moment. But, but God speaks to us in those things. But in all those instances where you think the Holy Spirit is leading you on something, here's what I want you to hear. You need to test that with Scripture. You need to test it. Test it with Scripture. What we have in this, in this book, this Bible, this is the Holy Spirit's primary communication to you. Okay? And these pages is how the Holy Spirit speaks to you. As you study this, this is how God speaks to you. And further, in this book, this is all you need for life and godliness. Okay? This is all you need. You don't need Him to speak to you audibly. I think he has once in my life, but I don't need that in order to be faithful or, the, or to know the way that I'm supposed to live. You, you don't need him to speak to you in a dream. He does do that. I don't think that that's all the time. Let me say this too. You don't need him to do some sort of miraculous healing for you to have enough evidence that he's real and the gospel is true. You don't need any of that. All you need is in these pages. Now, if he does those things, praise God. That's great. But you don't have to have those things. You don't have to have those things in order to believe Him and to trust Him. 
However, also, I think we need to be very sensitive in those moments to self-deception. There's been a number of times in my life that I've been confident that the Holy Spirit was leading me in something. And then when I brought church family and mentors and, and those who really know me into that, he was not leading me in those directions. It wasn't that I was necessarily doing anything malicious or bad. I, it was just I had a heart's desire for something. I wanted to go hard some uh, direction. I thought it was the Holy Spirit leading me. But when I brought other people into it, and then we tested it with Scripture, and people then who knew me, we brought that wise counsel in, it, w- it was clear that he was not leading me in that. Are you with me? When you sense the Holy Spirit uh, speaking to you, I think the greatest principle is, is to test it with, the, with, uh, uh, with God's Word. The Holy Spirit and the Word are never in conflict with each other. They always work together. So when you're studying God's Word, that's primarily how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Okay, that's my diversion. Let's go back to verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. The Bible can be categorized or organized according to a series of covenants. And this verse speaks to the covenant. Now, a covenant is just a divine contract. Like, like if you think of a contract, it's, it's an agreement between two parties, right? This party says, I agree to do this. If you do that, then I agree to do this. That's what a contract is. But, but when we talk about a covenant, the, the, the divine, God is involved in it in some way. I, I use this phrase or this term covenant in a couple of areas of my life. Number one, when we sit down with a couple who's interested in getting married and we go through premarital counseling with them, we talk with them that, hey, in this engagement season, this is a commitment. It's not a small thing to break. Sometimes you do need to break that and you don't need to marry this person. But a covenant, that moment when you say I do, you're bringing God into this relationship in a, new, in, in a totally different way. Breaking that thing, that's a whole different category. The other way we use this phrase is uh, around here when we, we're in this season of membership. And we call our members covenant members. And the reason why we do that is, is because we don't want you to think that this is like just a membership in some sort of club or, or whatever. We want you to understand that there's a, a, a sacredness to what we're committing to here. We want you to understand that, listen, the role of this local church has a sacred, sanctifying role in your spiritual life, that that God is involved in this. So those are the the ways that we use covenant. We want to understand that there's a a contract going on here. There's an agreement being made, but God is one of the parties in that agreement. Like I said, the, the Bible can be categorized or organized according to a series of covenants. Really, the Bible is organized by two main covenants. There's the covenant of works and there's the covenant of grace. So if you think back in the garden with Adam and Eve, that's the series of the covenant of works. And they had one work to keep. Remember what it was? Don't eat of that tree. They had one job. That was the one thing that they were to keep and they didn't keep it. And before you throw stones at them, you would break it somehow too and I would as well. But at that moment, there were all these agreements that God had. He carried them out. They eventually died as a result of it. But then God stepped in and he established this covenant of grace. He he offered something better to humanity. Starting there in Genesis 3.15, he establishes this covenant of grace. And we still live under this covenant of grace. Now, under this covenant of grace are all these smaller covenants. You know, there's a covenant with Adam and Eve after that. There's a covenant with, uh, with uh, Noah and Abraham and then with Moses. So all of these are these smaller covenants within that. You also have two kind of big categories in the Bible where under the covenant of grace, you have the old covenant of grace and then you have the new covenant of grace. 
Now, the way to remember that is everything in the Old Testament, that's part of the Old Covenant of grace. And the things in the New Testament are the New Covenant of grace. So when you see talk about a new covenant, it's referring to this covenant relationship that we have with God after Christ comes. And that's what he's talking about here in Jeremiah 31. He's prophesying about this covenant relationship that is to come. And what he says here is he says uh, that there will be inner transformation. When Jesus comes and this new covenant is established, you're going to be transformed on the inside. Now, he does something here that I think is very helpful. He talks about uh, how he's going to transform you on the inside. Now, think about your insides. On the inside, you have a head and you have a heart. You, you, you have a head, if you will, that, that is your mind, your, your thought life, right? And, and then you have a heart, and this is more your emotions or, or the feeling side of your being. Now, what uh, God is saying here in Jeremiah 31 is that the Holy Spirit is going to come in and, and he's going to totally transform your head and your heart. He's going to transform how you think, and He's going to transform how you feel. And more specifically, He promises to write the law on their minds and to write the law on their hearts. So the Holy Spirit bears witness to the promise that He will come as part of the new covenant. And it's this promised arrangement where God is going to conform us into His image in a way to where He is going to transform our minds and transforms our heart. Isn't that a glorious promise? I think it's a good place to, to stop and marvel at that. That on our insides, we have this helper that we didn't have before. You have with you than your thought life and in your emotional life. You with me? You can capture your thoughts. Not because you're awesome, but because he's awesome and he's with you. Okay? Now, this leads to this empowered life. So the Holy Spirit comes in and he helps you understand these glorious truths of the Bible. He then helps you apply those to your present situation. Like when you work to memorize a Bible verse, and then you're, you're dealing uh, with some sort of situation, and then all of a sudden, bingo, that, that verse pops in your head again. That's the Holy Spirit enlightening your mind. It's, right, it's how He writes His law on your mind. He, he can help you perceive a situation according to the gospel versus according to the world. Yeah, yeah, I know this is the conventional wisdom. I know how everybody else acts. But God's wanting me to act this way and respond this way. You see, you can experience painful suffering, yet the Spirit can help you put it in a perspective of, of God's goodness and in an eternity and all these eternity, eternal promises that He has. The new covenant is a promise to transform your perspective, your thinking, your mind. However, we also know that when you change your thinking, when you perceive something different, it, it kind of drips down into your emotions, Right? Like, think about those moments in your life. Like, when, when I believe that God is going uh, to work good through a tough situation, do you know what that does to my heart? You know what that does to my emotions? It brings me peace. But like, when I go through something tough, and, and, and I'm suffering on something, and, and I start saying, well, that's, that's too powerful for God. Like, God's not powerful enough to help me. Or maybe God's not good enough to help me in that moment. You know where that leads me? That never leads me to peace. It leads me to anger. It leads me to anxiety. So when I have these, these, uh, this covenant perspective on how I'm thinking about things, it then transforms how I'm feeling. So the new covenant is a promise to transform your heart as well as your emotions and your feelings. That's the nature of the new covenant the Holy Spirit is promising in Jeremiah 31. The, the Holy Spirit is saying the new covenant is better than the old covenant. 
Again, think of all these covenants in the Bible. It only gets better, right? So if this is the explanation of the new covenant, it's better than the old covenant. Are you with me? Well, that raises the question, well, how is it better? Well, the old covenant was very conditional, but the new covenant is very unconditional. Are you with me? So the old covenant called us to keep certain rules, but the new covenant explains that the rules have already been kept for us. You see, the the old covenant told us to post the covenant on your doorpost so you won't forget, but the new covenant promises us a Holy Spirit to help us never forget. The old said, obey, but the new promises to transform your head and your heart, and the Spirit is born witness to the promise of all that uh, all that inner transformation. He's guaranteeing it. These are the promises that He gives us. Isn't this glorious? Isn't this good news that He's with us in all of this? Well, let me give you, let me give you another one. He bears witness to a covenant, not only a just of inner transformation, but also eternal forgiveness. Look at what He says in verse 17. Then He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So not only does the new covenant, which again is backed by the promises of the Holy Spirit, not only does it guarantee inner transformation, but it also guarantees eternal forgiveness. In fact, there's a double negative here in the Greek. What he's saying here is there, he's emphatically promising that God will give you eternal forgiveness. He will never again hold your sins against you. Friends, he's not like your embittered spouse who won't forgive you. You see, he, he, he is, he's not like that embittered spouse who just continues to bring up the wrongs over and over again, always holding it over you. He, he's not like that boss who maybe holds you at arm's length because of that one mistake that you made. He's not like that friend who now ghosts you and won't text you back because of what you said. When you sin against God, He forgives you forever. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this good news? You see, this means that He doesn't hold your sins against you legally. As a result, when you die and you stand before God, you know what he's going to declare? Innocent. Like he doesn't, uh, he doesn't uh, like, like think of it economically. He doesn't hold your debt against you. It's like when you get to that day of judgment and there's like this mile high stack of invoices of listing of your sins, he's going to stamp paid for on top of it. He also, this impacts us, our relationship with him, even relationally. Like he, like he doesn't hold things against us relationally like the other people do in your life. Like when you sin against God, he forgives you and he reconciles you back to him. He's not harsh and distant towards you. You see, there is a, that's how the, the old and the new covenant are different. In the old covenant, sins were remembered and you needed to make sacrifices over and over and over again. But in the new covenant, your sins are forgotten. This is totally different. You see, in the old covenant, mistakes were held against you, and you needed to do more good works to make up for them. However, the new covenant, God only remembers forgiving you, and He remembers your wrongs no more. Again, the Spirit is bearing witness to this promise. You see, not only did Jeremiah prophesy about this, and these are certainly glorious promises uh, that we have, but the Holy Spirit guarantees them. He bears witness to them. It, these, are, these are His eternal promises. This week as I was wrestling with some of this, I, I remembered a story I heard years ago. I, I knew an, an older man who had uh, tried to help out a younger man in his church. Uh, this younger guy was kind of in this dead-end job, and the dude hated his job. 
And so when they would come together in small group, it was like, that was the prayer request. I hate my job. And um, he would, not only was it like just a, a job that you didn't like doing, but also he'd kind of hit a ceiling with it, and, and uh, he was now married. They were about to have their second child, and, and the job just wasn't providing financially for his family in the way he needed it. So this was just his constant prayer request. He's a good guy. The older guy was listening to this and entered into praying for him. And the older guy decided, you know what, I'm going to give him a shot in my company. He approached him and, and offered to hire him into his company. And that was a real blessing to the younger man. I mean, this older guy had seen something in him, gave him a great opportunity, and so he said yes and jumped in. Now, if you've ever started a new job, you know those early months are kind of tough, right? You're trying to learn everything. And, and, and this guy kind of stumbled out of the gate a little bit. He, he didn't start out strong, and he kind of struggled. But, but the older guy not only just hired him, but he kind of stepped in and even mentored the guy. Like, he kind of helped him through those early weeks and months. And he got into a place where this guy was, like, really thriving in the job. He's doing well. Like, everybody in the company liked him. He was always on time. He kept his commitments. He was an honest guy. So all the executives above him, they, they really valued him. And listen, at the end of the day, he was profitable to the company, okay? You know, he helped the bottom line. And so, you know, they were all very pleased with his work. A promotion opportunity came up, and this guy applied for it, but the executives decided to go in another direction. They didn't think he was quite ready for it. It kind of bothered him, but not only did other people in the company were seeing he was doing a good job, but there were other people outside the company that saw that. And there was a similar company in town that approached him about coming to work for him. Long story short, he jumped ship and went to the other company. This frayed the relationship, and the, the older man felt really betrayed. He felt like he had given this guy a shot. He'd really invested in him. And, but then when he saw him at church, he was distant with him. He, he, he just he didn't know how to handle it. He was really struggling with being mad at him. And frankly, he was just having trouble forgiving him. And so it was just kind of awkward together. The younger guy, he felt the distance, and he didn't know what to do with that, and, and he, frankly, he kind of felt wrong that he didn't get the promotion. He didn't think there was anything wrong with him jumping ship, and, and he was uh, really frustrated that this guy that he really cared about and valued, now he was just being really distant to him, and so the, the relationship was just at this, at this weird place. The older we all get, we see these things happen, right? Were they both wrong? Yeah. Were they both right? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just one of those scenarios, right? But that's how human relationships work. Like your relationship with God is categorically different. Are you with me? You see, once the sin is committed, you're immediately forgiven, and that sin is forgotten. He's not holding your mistakes against you. You see, when we run up that record of sins, he says, what record? You see, when we sin again, he whites it out of his ledger. When he looks at at you, he doesn't think condemned. He looks at you and thinks forgiven. He bears witness to this covenant of eternal forgiveness. Isn't that glorious good news today? Let, let, let me give you one more. Number four, he bears witness to a covenant that is better than religion. Look, look at verse 18 with me. Where there is forgiveness of these, there, there is no longer any offering of sin. You see, his point in highlighting that the new covenant promises both inner transformation and eternal forgiveness, it's to highlight that the new covenant is better than the old covenant. The Holy Spirit bears witness to that fact, that this new thing is better than the old. What he's getting at here, the old is religion and the new is Jesus. Are you with me? The old covenant, it was all about these continual offerings and sacrifices of sin. 
So if you sinned, then you had to offer more sacrifices. And, and everyone continues to sin, so everyone needed to continue to offer these sacrifices. So when you went to the temple, there was always a fire burning. When, when you went to the temple mouth, there was this continual river of blood flowing down because there were these continual sacrifices that needed to be made. I've been to the temple mount, and do you know what's not there? The temple. And do you know why? Because it's not needed. Amen? We should never rebuild the temple. We don't need it. We have something better. Are you with me? We have something better than animal sacrifices. We've had one sacrifice for all sin. It's one and done. Isn't Jesus better than religion? The temple's not there anymore. It's been, it's been taken care of once and for all. Jesus' atonement is in force. The old covenant is abolished. You see, Jesus fulfilled the law. No more sacrifice is needed. The old covenant is obsolete. It has no more power, and it's been replaced by something better. Satisfaction has been made. Forgiveness has been granted. Friends, the good news of Hebrews 10, 15 to 18 is that we have something better than religion. We have Jesus. Okay, what does that mean? What, what are the implications of that? Like, is that just this theoretical thing that if I ever... Dr. Caswell ever gives you a theology quiz and, you know, you're going to check the right box here on what do you believe in the Old Covenant or the New Covenant? Do, do those truths of the fact that you are internally transformed and that, that you have eternal forgiveness and that religion is better, what does that mean for this afternoon and on Monday morning? Well, I think it means a few things. Number one, it means that we need to repent or we need to turn from certain beliefs in order to believe in other beliefs. This means that, uh, that we need to think differently about certain situations. The, the, the main charge in, in thinking is that we have a, a conditional relationship with God. That's the change that needs to happen. And, and hear me, I'm like you. I constantly drift back into that. I constantly drift back into believing that I have a conditional versus an unconditional relationship with God. So, so when I make a mistake, I, I want to run away from God or I want to do some sort of good work to compensate for it so then we'll be right with Him. But, but I, I, I don't believe in that moment that God loves me the same when I'm in sin as when I'm walking faithfully. His love never wavers in that moment. It's always constant. It's not conditional. Do you believe that God is always condemning you or always forgiving you? Like, like right now, if you're honest, do you believe that God is mad at you or that he delights in you? That goes right back to your belief about what the covenant is. He's not like your ex. He's not like your boss. He's not like your friend who won't text you back. Turn from believing your relationship with him is conditional. That it's, that it's conditioned based upon your good works. And believe that it's unconditional. That it's based upon his good work on the cross. Well, second, I think this passage means that we are to feel different things about Jesus. If you're here today out of duty versus delight, then that's like a spiritual check engine light blinking in your life. You're not feeling the right things. Now, be encouraged because if you're there, the, the way you change from duty to delight, the, the way you get to joy is, is to go back in your mind and perceive all these things according to the gospel. Go back to the fact that, that Jesus promises to change you internally. 
He promises to be with you in your thoughts. He promises to be more powerful over your emotions. He promises then to, to uh, uh, eternally forgive you of all your sins. That the things you've done wrong doesn't change his love for you. You, you see, when you go through and you ponder those and you review those things in your mind, do you know what I do when I do that? I, I, I then turn on worship music. Like that leads to joy, doesn't it? You see, it's going back to those gospel truths and letting those covenant promises take you to that place of joy. Feel different things about Jesus as a result of his covenant promises. But third and the last thing, I think this passage means something even more tangible, something even more direct. You see, for most people, if you ask them, okay, if you die today, stand before God in heaven, why should I let you into my heaven? Do you know what most people do with that question? Like, why should God let you into heaven? They start running down their resume, don't they? They start running down, well, I helped this old, old lady. I was at church more than I wasn't. I, you know, they, they start going down this list of their good works, don't they? Friend, if that's you today, this passage is calling you to be born again. It's calling you to believe something different. You see, when you believe not in your own good works, but you believe in his one good work on the cross, that's how you become a Christian. That's how you're converted. That, that's how you're changed forever. That's how you're born again. He died so that the old covenant sacrifices would cease. He died so that, so that you don't have to die. He paid your debt so that you don't have to pay that debt. And he calls you to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus raised him from the dead. Confess something better than religion. Believe in the covenant promises. If you're there today, don't waste this moment. Like, don't walk out of this room not having gotten right with God. When we start singing here in a moment, I invite you to the back to meet with one of our leaders and one of our elders. They just want to pray with you and, and talk with you and answer your questions. They want you to be right with God today. They want you to believe the right thing. If you're believing in your own good works, it's never going to be good enough. I'll close with a story about Julia. Julia was... Um, a lot like us when we were young, and she was immature, she was selfish, and she burned a lot of bridges. She, it, it really brought a lot of painful consequences in her life, and some of her friends, as a result, turned from her, and, and they didn't want to have anything to do with her. Even some of her family turned from her, and as she, she got a little bit of space from some of the things she had done and some of the things she had said, like, like she recognized she was in the wrong, and, and frankly, it embarrassed her. Uh, she felt a lot, of, uh, a lot of shame from it. But the thing that really hurt her was is that she looked at her relationship with other people and like she had forgiven people for like way worse than some of the things that she had done. And so not only was she like dealing with like embarrassment and shame from some of the things that she had said and done, but also she started to get like mad at her friends and family. Like wh why could she forgive something less and then you not be able to forgive this? And, and frankly, life felt hard in that moment. Like she looked at her relationships and they were very conditional. In her hurt and in her bitterness, a mentor from church really tried to encourage Julia to forgive her friends and to forgive her family who had hurt her. That mentor even went one step further and kind of bear, you know, remember the bear one another's burdens? They said he really stepped in with Julia and just helped her bear those burdens. Man, if you've been at a bitter place in your life, you know that's a burden to bear, and it's hard for somebody to bear that burden with you. And, and her friend stepped in with her, and she just encouraged her to forgive these, these uh, toxic relationships that she had been in. And, and she really led her through a process of, of saying, listen, forgiveness is a moment, 
But forgiveness is kind of also a process. As those thoughts and feelings come up again, you just need to keep forgiving. But, but the real key for Julia was when she really pondered Jesus' unconditional love for her. You see, her relationship with God was so different than what she had experienced from friends and families. It wasn't conditional. It was unconditional. So when she sinned, he forgave. When, when she sinned, his love remained. When she sinned, he was still his beloved daughter. He didn't love her less when she failed. She, she had this covenant relationship with God, and it wasn't a conditional relationship with God. I mean, that, that just transformed all of her thinking. What, what that did is it kind of did a couple of things, is it drew, him, drew her closer to him. Like, like where her friends failed, Jesus became the solution. He became this friend that would never fail her. But, but even further, it, it gave her freedom. It gave her freedom to forgive. Like, it, like if he had forgiven her of all these things, he could, she could then forgive her friends and her family for the hurt that they had caused her. So Julia attempted to reconcile with her family and her old friends. And listen, I'm not going to you know, put rainbows and unicorns on this. There were some real mixed results in this, okay? That's probably a polite way of saying it. Some of them, she would text and, hey, I'd like to get together. I, I feel like I've really wronged you, and, and I'd love to apologize. And some of her friends, just, they just ghosted her. Didn't even text her back, okay? And then she had, you know, some who would, okay, they would meet with her. They would sit down, and she would apologize, and, and, and she would, you know, really admit her stuff and, and, and a desire to restore their friendship. And some of them were, like, really skeptical, and maybe they said the right things, but the relationship wasn't really improved. But then she had this third group of people that like really heard her. They understood how hard that was. God softened their hearts and like the relationship became closer than it had ever been. Today, Julia is still battling uh, the belief that her idea people's perceptions of her. She's battling the conditional nature of religion, but she's seeking to find joy in something better. She, she's seeking to find joy in something better than religion. She's seeking to find joy in that unconditional nature of Jesus' covenant promises with her. So where she was angry, she's beginning to experience peace. Where, where she was filled with shame, she's now beginning to experience joy. Friends, religion has failed. The temple should not be rebuilt. Believing your relationship with God is conditional like so many other relationships. That's going to lead to pride. That's going to lead to condemnation. That's going to lead to bitterness and anger. But Jesus offers you something better. His covenant promise is that he will transform your insides and that he will eternally forgive your sins. Friends, joy in something better than religion. Joy in Jesus' covenant promises. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this passage and this glorious reminder of these truths that never change. No matter what we face in life, you're with us, you're for us. Lord, I pray that we would be a people that trust you in all things. Lord, I pray when we're tempted to view life according to how the world views it, that we would be drawn back to these, these glorious promises that remain. Spirit, may you come and transform our, our insides. Help us to understand increasingly uh, according to your word. Help us to feel according to the gospel. And Father, may we always cherish our eternal forgiveness of sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.